0: 31 through 34 it's on page 944 and 945 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you if you will please stand for the reading of God's word what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all Towards the end of Romans chapter 8, we're starting to land the plane, it's beginning its descent, so to speak. And so what today we're going to do as we concentrate on these four verses, verse 31 through 34 here in Romans chapter 8, what you're going to see is this idea that Paul's going to put before us, this idea of no accusation. Next week we're going to wrap up Romans chapter 8 where Paul is going to talk about this idea of no separation. But this morning we're going to see is Paul is going to come to us and he's really going to usher us into the third major section of Romans chapter 8. So if you wanted to pan back from Romans chapter 8, you could easily divide Romans chapter 8 into three big sections. The first section we spent several weeks working through was verses 1 through 17, and in that First major section of scripture, we saw the transformation of believers by the Spirit. So, Paul's talking about life in the Spirit. Believers have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And it's this indwelling Spirit who is the foundation of our hope. We have the hope of freedom from the power of sin and death. We have the hope of future resurrection bodies. We have the hope of the Spirit's help in fighting sin and Ultimately, we have the hope of adoption into the family of God. Paul peaks high saying it's because the Spirit, he's the Spirit of adoption. He has folded you into the family of God. And so Paul dices up Romans 8, first major section, verse 1 through verse 17. We have been transformed as believers by the Spirit. And because of this, we have hope then Paul shifts to his second major section of Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. And we split that over the season of Advent, but whenever we looked at those verses 18 through 30, we see that Paul turned to the realities of suffering in this present age and the reality that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have a hope of future glory. The hope of future glory. And it's in these verses 18 through 30 in this second major section of Romans chapter 8 that we saw that, yes, sin has had its way in the world. The world, creation, has been subjected to futility. It's in bondage to corruption. Paul says it's groaning as if in the pains of childbirth. Yes, sin has had its way in the world. And at times it's had its way even in the life of a believer. We groan too along with creation as we just recognize Man, we've got something greater that God has saved us to, but we're not quite fully experiencing that yet. The Spirit, though, in the midst of this suffering world, in the midst of the realities of our battles with sin, we have hope still. The suffering of this world does not crush the hope we have in Christ. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. This gives us hope. The Spirit prays for us on our behalf. This gives us hope. But this hope that we have just doesn't hang in midair. By the time you get down through the 27th verse and Paul transitions from verse 27 into verse 28, what we see is that Paul takes all of these things, life and the Spirit, and While we are to think about our future glory and present suffering, and he takes all of the hope that we find in the way the Spirit is working in our life, and he just just doesn't just set it out there in midair floating on nothing, but he grounds it on the grand promise of verse 28, that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who've been called according to his purpose. Paul wants us to see this. Our hope rests upon God's process of salvation in our lives. His foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification which is fulfilling God's purpose of conforming you and me to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And what you get is this grand crescendo of hope. It's it's sort of like Paul's this master cook, and what he's doing is he has this recipe for hope in front of him, and he's taking a little dash of the Spirit, and he's taking a little dash of the resurrection, and a little dash of our hope in fighting sin, and yes, I know there's present suffering, but we have the hope of future glory, and he's just mixing in all these things, the Spirit's help the Spirit's aid, the grand promise that God is working all things for us. So he throws in a little pinch and a little dash. He whips it all up, sticks it in the oven, and what comes out to us is nothing other than a full-blown, promise-filled hope feast. That's what he's been doing for the first 30 verses. He's been cranking high on this, and he went and took it to a crescendo, and he parks it right there. Now, the odd thing is this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he could have just authoritatively said, like, listen, I'm Paul, the Spirit." of God has revealed this to me. This is what I have to say to you, period. Next chapter, nine, let's go on. But he doesn't do that. He could have stopped at verse 30. He could have peeked out at that crescendo. Last week we said it's like the summit of a mountain. He has worked his way to the top. He could have planted the flag and said that is it. There's nothing else left to say. I am putting this promise before you now. Believe it. Believe it. But as I said, he just doesn't do that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul turns and says, listen, I know I've said a lot of things in these first 30 verses, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm also going to now lead you how to rightly respond to these promises of hope, these promises of the Spirit's help that we've been talking about which is a beautiful thing for us because we don't have to wonder. Like, right, you might read these first 30 verses and go like, I don't quite know what to do. Like, how am I supposed to process this? What is this supposed to mean for my life? What do I need to think? What do I need to say? What, What are the actions of my life supposed to be? And we don't have to wonder. God in his beauty has loved us enough to inspire Paul by the Holy Spirit to then turn and write some of the most eloquent verses that you could possibly find in the Scripture as Paul turns to verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8, which is the third and final section of this chapter. So we can ask ourselves this question, with all that has been said about life in the Spirit, how exactly are we to think? Paul answers, I want you, sir, I want you, ma'am, to think like this. Know that for those who are in Christ Jesus, no accusation will stand against God's people. This is the main idea of what he's going to deliver to us in these verses 31 through 34. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no accusation can stand against God's people. So what we're going to do is just take that main idea, we're going to divide it up into four main headings as we work through these four verses. So remember this, no opposition, no withholding, no accusation, no condemnation. No opposition, no withholding, no accusation, no condemnation. So first, we're going to see is this, verse 31, that Paul is going to show us this idea of no opposition. You look in your copy of Scripture, you can read verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? See, in light of all that has been written, Paul leads us by the hand to see the magnitude of what the first 30 verses are all about. What we can say to these things that he's been talking about in the past 30 verses and arguably even all the way back to Romans chapter 1, what we can say to these things is this. Man, if God is for us, who in the world can stand against us? Who can be against us? See, it's the activity of God's Spirit in our transformation along with God's sovereign guidance in our salvation and the circumstances of our life. These things are the evidence that God is for us. God is for us. So when Paul goes on to ask, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? He does not mean that believers have no opponents. Like he somehow got his head stuck in the sand where it's like, listen, if you're just a Christ follower, there's going to be nobody who's going to oppose you here here on this world, here on earth. He's not saying that. When he says who can be against us, he's not saying that believers will never have any opponents against them. That's just, that's just not the way Jesus talks. But what he means is that with God for us, it makes not the slightest difference who stands against us. See, if God is for you, then God himself would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. And the resounding truth that pours forth from Scripture is that nothing can defeat God. Nothing can outdo God. There's not God and then someone who's one step higher. He is the pinnacle. The buck stops with God himself. And if you are in Christ, which means you have a relationship with God, and if God is for you, then someone, something has to come along and defeat God in order for them to be able to get to you. But the good news is nothing can defeat God. Nothing can outdo God. Therefore, since God is for us, no one can successfully oppose us. And the proof that God is for you is then found in what God has given up for you. See, these four verses are all connected together. Martin Lloyd Jones a, was a famous preacher in the 1900s in England, and he had this phrase logic on fire. That is what verses 31 through 34 is it is logic that is on fire. He is just logically taking the step. Listen, if this is true, then this has to be true. And if this is true, then this has to be true. And if this is true, then this has to be true. These four verses are logic on fire and they're meant to stir our hearts to realize the good promise-filled hope that you have if you are in Christ Jesus. God is for you. And how can we know that God is for us? Paul says, we'll just look at verse 32. I'll show you how much God is for you. See, with God, there's no opposition, with God, there is no withholding. This is how much God is for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, God, not also, along with the son, graciously give us all? Things. With God, there is no withholding. See, God did not spare his own son. Instead, God gave him, Jesus Christ, up for us all. And all the evidence that you and I will ever need in order to know just how much God is for us is by looking to the cross. See, Christ's crucifixion is the landmark event. Which stands at the center of history where it proclaims the magnitude of God's love for sinners. See, at the cross, God the Father did not spare his own Son, for at the cross, the full weight of God's wrath against sin was laid upon Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah paints this picture about the Christ when he writes that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then Isaiah comes to this point where he says, Ultimately, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. See, at the cross, the Father freely gave up the Son for us all. The cross is good news for sinners because at the cross we can measure just how great God's love is for us. And we don't measure God's love for sinners in feet, and in inches. No, we measure God's love for sinners with a bloody Savior. That's how much God loves sinners. See, the idea of God not sparing the Son lies at the very heart of the gospel And this truth is just captured so well in a verse that comes from the hymn, How Great Thou Art, when the hymn writer says this, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. See, at the cross, God did not spare his son. At the cross, out of love, God the Father sent his son to die in your place and my place. And when we think about this, what we're to do is draw the same conclusion that the hymn writer does. I can scarce take this. and I can't fathom this. I can't wrap my mind around the realities of how much God loves us and that he would not spare his son. he could have spared them and said, I will do something else to save people. He could have had an alternate plan, but he didn't. Plan A from before the foundation of the world is that God the Son would take on flesh, live amongst us a perfect life, living the life we could not live, and then dying the death that we deserve. That's what's amazing about the gospel, that on the cross, Jesus... Gladly bore my burden, bore your burden. He bled and died to take away your sin and my sin. See, ultimately at the cross, we find God's most extravagant act of love that could ever possibly be portrayed. The old preacher Octavius Winslow asked this question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed him? Who who put him to death? Who's responsible? Who killed Jesus? And he goes on to say, see, it wasn't Judas who killed Jesus out of greed. It wasn't Pilate who killed Jesus out of fear. It wasn't even the Jews out of envy. No, the truth of the matter is that it was the Father out of love. See, for at the cross, we see that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See the same language? Love leading to giving. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not spare the son and he did so out of love for your benefit and my benefit. Now, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, Paul then turns to ask this question, right? He doesn't just leave that there. He, he gives us this piece of evidence of proof that God is for you. How much is God for you? Listen, he didn't spare his son. He actually gave him up. And it leads Paul then to the place where he says, well, listen, this is how we properly think about this now. If God did not spare him But gave him up for us all, if this is true, how will God not also, along with the Son, graciously give us all things? And it's with these words, that second half of verse 32, it's with these words that Paul is making an argument. And he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God was so willing to give up his Son, the ultimate gift... How then would he be unwilling to graciously give us all things? He proved how much he was forced by giving up the greatest gift that could ever possibly be. How would he be unwilling to give us all things that are necessary for our completion and our growth and our march towards salvation? See, in the giving of his son, God the Father gave everything. And if the father was willing to give the gift of his own son at the cross, then the cross becomes the promise of the continuing unfailing generosity of God in all circumstances of life. Remember that God works all things for the good of believers. Everything given to them turns out to be a gift for their benefit. That's the argument of verse 28, 29, and 30. God did not spare his own son in order that we might be reconciled to God the Father. And Paul wants us to see that if God was willing to give up his son for our salvation, then God will not fail to graciously give us all things necessary for the completion of our salvation. See, the question we have to ask is, what are these all things? What are the all things that Paul is talking about in verse 32 consist of? And the answer is this, the all things that God will graciously give us are all these little incremental steps that it is going to take to get you and me from where we are now in our relationship with God to where God has promised we will be with Christ forever with Him. Remember what Paul has said, God has a purpose for your life, which is for you to be conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, this goal will be accomplished. It's a promise. If you are in Christ, it means this. God has called you. God has saved you. And the promise is this, that in his calling on that promise, it leads to the fulfillment of the purpose. The purpose being, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. The Son, it will be accomplished. It's not, well, it might be, and if you do enough good works to really convince God that you are really legit, then it'll work. No, because God saved, because God called, because God filled you with the Spirit, because God justified, because God will glorify the purpose and the promise. They're going to come to pass. But what this does is it informs us about something. It informs us that everything that happens to us is designed to ensure God's plan is going to be brought about in your life. So God is orchestrating all things for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, this goal will be accomplished. So what this means is that everything that happens to us in our life is designed by God to ensure that his plan will definitely be brought about in your life. God withholds nothing that we need to become like Christ and to live forever with Christ. See, he stands ready to give us whatever we need so that we will be prepared for eternity in heaven. So this means that no matter whatever suffering, affliction, or pain comes your way, whatever hard, bitter, or frustrating thing that you are experiencing right now, it is not evidence that God is against you. It's not evidence that somehow God has forgotten you. It's not evidence that somehow that you have moved yourself beyond the reach of God's love and you're just out there right beyond the perimeter where God is going, man, you know, like you're just too far beyond my reach. I can't speak in your life. I can't order the events. I'm just, you're sorry. You're just a little too far. That's not that. No matter whatever suffering, affliction, or pain, no matter whatever hard, bitter, or frustrating thing that you're experiencing right now, what this teaches us is that all the circumstances of life, these are just the tiny parts of the all things which God has graciously given to you and to me in order to move us further along in our journey of being conformed to the image of the Son. That's hard. Because what this means is this, is there's going to be moments in your life when suffering, I'm talking about suffering, lands in your lap. And you've got no clue what's going on in the midst of that suffering. It's just going to be absolute fog in absolute days. Debris, ash, rubble, everywhere. You've got no, your life is literally crumbling around you and you've got no answers. And the hope of these verses is this, is that God is for you, God orders all things, and what he's doing is saying this, that somehow in the grand purposes of God, he has allowed the suffering in your life for a particular reason because the truth of this verse 32 is this, is that he allows it because he knows this very thing will move you further down the road towards the goal which he has already accomplished in Christ Jesus for your life. I mean, that's good news, right? Because what this means is that when all hell literally breaks loose in your life and you've just got no freaking clue about what's going on, the promise is this God's going, I've not forgotten you. You're not beyond my reach. I'm actually redeeming the good and the evil in your life. I've allowed this to take place in your life so you would know my grace, so you would know me more, so you'd be conformed to the image of your son. You've got to know I am not going to fail in making you and molding you into the image of your son, and I've brought this into your life so that you will grow in your walk with Christ. It's like, man, that's good news. That's promise. That's promise. That is promise for our souls. That's the promise you can take to the bank. That's a promise you can cash. And that stream of revenue is never going to run dry. That promise stream. Never going to run dry. Some of you are there in that place. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that makes the suffering and the pain good. In a couple of weeks, I think we're going to just insert another sermon. We might go another route and talk about some other aspects of this. But for now... The way we see this and the way we think about this in Romans chapter 8 is Paul is just sitting there going, hope, hope, hope. God is for us. God did not spare his own son. God gave the son up for us all and the conclusion we can draw is that no one will be able to No one will ever be able to bring any charge against God's elect, verse 33. Why? For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no accusation and there's no condemnation. There's no accusation and there's no condemnation. If it's true that God is for us and if it's true that God did not spare his son, if it's true that he did not give him up for us, Paul says, let me just take it into a courtroom setting. Let me paint this, this picture of like a judge, or some people might come and go, man, God, I know you've done some things for this person here, but I'm going to lob accusations. I'm going to lob condemnation upon this person. And the promise that... Paul then rolls into in verse 33 and 34 is this, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we know that God is for us. And if God is for us, that means God has justified us. And if God has justified us, then we can say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can accuse us and actually make that accusation stick? Answer, nobody. Nobody can do that. What if someone comes and stands before us on that final judgment day before God where my only hope is pleading the righteousness in the blood of Jesus Christ that is now mine, Because I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation. I'm standing there going, God, I've got nothing else to plead before you. I'm not bringing my good works. I'm not bringing my religious deeds. I'm not bringing my religious actions. I'm not bringing anything that I've done. Everything that I've done is paltry. and Nothing I can do can save me. My only hope of pleading before you is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And what if someone were to walk into that courtroom before God and go, but man, I, I, I've heard everything that he's just said, but you should look at the the history of his life. There's times when he's failed. There's times when he's faltered. There's times when he had this really awesome zeal, but then he failed in discipleship. There's times when he said certain things and then would go home and sin. Don't Haven't you looked at the the pictures and the panorama of the life of Jonathan Davis. I know that he's pleading the blood of Christ, but I'm going to condemn him. He has done things that are not good, true, and right. What is our hope in that moment? Our hope is this, that Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, before God, you and I will not be condemned because Christ Jesus Is the one who died. The Bible speaks very plainly that those who are outside of Christ, they stand condemned before God. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. To stand before God on that final day of judgment apart from Christ is to stand before God justly condemned for your sin. But here Paul is building his case that for those who are in Christ Jesus, they now have no condemnation. There is no one who can justly condemn God's people before God because the death of Jesus on their behalf has satisfied God's wrath against them. Christ has redeemed them from the condemnation that they justly deserve by taking their condemnation upon himself. Again, the hymn writer nails it when he writes, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. See, the gospel of the cross is this. In my place, condemned, he stood. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus is the one who died taking my condemnation upon himself. It's the great exchange of the gospel. It's the thing that we should scarce be able to take in. That Christ's righteousness gets credited to my account. But my sin and condemnation get credited to his account. It's the thing that we can scarce take in. But see, not only that, not only are you not condemned because Christ Jesus is the one who died. But you stand not condemned because Christ Jesus is the one who was raised. Satan, sin, and death couldn't defeat Jesus. He tried very hard, couldn't do it. Christ's resurrection to life it is the singular sign found in all the Bible which proves that Jesus has defeated all three. When Christ resurrected to life, he put death to death. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he put sin in its grave. The resurrection of Christ is the heel strike which has crushed Satan's Head. The resurrection is the shining, glorious flag in the ground that King Jesus has defeated the enemies of our soul and that there is victory found in Christ alone. And as a result of the resurrection, that Christ is the one who was raised from the dead. Satan, sin, and death have lost their power of condemnation on that final judgment day. That's why Paul says, Listen, you've got no condemnation. Christ, yes, died, but he was raised. And his raising from the dead shows he has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Lastly, you're not condemned because Christ Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, Paul writes. That's the end of verse 34. See, the very presence of Christ at the Father's right hand, that's evidence of, of his completed work of redemption. It's done. It's completed. He's sitting down at the right hand of the Father. There's nothing more that needs to be done or can be done in regard to salvation. It just can't be done. Christ has accomplished everything that needs to be done. Proof? Sitting at the Father's right hand. And this evidence of him sitting at the Father's right hand, it becomes further evidence that he's doing something for us, that he is interceding for us. It's the completed work of redemption that Christ Jesus has accomplished. And then this completed work of redemption that Christ has accomplished, sitting at the right hand, he then turns and takes up the mantle of intercession. Intercession is just pleading, praying on behalf of others, taking up someone else's cause as their own. That's what Christ Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father. He's taking up, he's taking up our cause. He's interceding for us. Before God, continually pleading our cause before the Spirit. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no accusation, no condemnation will stand against God's people. So how do we respond to this? Verses 31 through 34. How do we respond to this? In light of all that we've just heard, we, we must remember that in Christ Jesus, from these verses, there's no opposition There's no withholding, there's no accusation, there's no condemnation. But we must also remember that these realities do not stop Satan from doing whatever he can to still attempt to accuse you and to condemn you. See, we have to understand, Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brothers, the accuser of of the brethren. He wakes up in the morning, cracks his knuckles, and goes, I'm only going to set myself to do one thing today. Hunt down the brothers and the sisters who are in Christ and do whatever I can to accuse them and to seek to condemn them, to heap guilt upon them, and to pour out shame into their face relentlessly. Nighttime comes. He wakes up the next morning and goes, second verse, same as the first. Accusation, condemnation, guilt, shame. Next day, accusation, condemnation, guilt, shame. That's his MO. That's what he does. He's the diabolos. He's the accuser of the brothers. He hunts us down with the desire to seek to draw our gaze away from Christ and then begin to hear his accusations to hear his condemnations, and then to begin to believe them. This is what he does. Satan loves to point out our hypocrisy, and he loves to drag us down with guilt over our failings. So the question then that you might be thinking is like, listen, I've heard Paul say, if God is for us, who can be against this man? I can think of some people who are against me. Who shall bring any charge against God's like man? I know some people who can bring a charge. Who is to condemn? I can think of one person who delights in seeking out To condemn me? So the question then becomes is the ringleader himself, the accuser, Satan, when he comes and he begins to just do his work, accuse and condemn, condemn and accuse, what are you going to do in those moments of accusation? When he shows up and he just starts doing those little whisperings Hey, remember when you failed yesterday? Remember when you said, Jesus, I will never sin like this again? to five minutes later sin like that again, to say, this is it, 2016. I will read my Bible every single day for 26 hours and a day because that's what Christians are supposed to do. And then like your alarm goes off Monday morning, 6 a.m., and you're like, mm, meh. Next thing you know, it's February, and you're like, I don't think I've read the first Genesis chapter one yet. And Satan slides into your lap, cuddles up, whispers into your ear, you really aren't all that you're cracked up to be, man. You're just really not the Christian that people would like for people to think that you are. And he begins to whisper accusation and condemnation. The question is, what are you going to do in those moments when that happens? When Satan is hurling all of the accusations and condemnations that he can possibly think about, what is your response going to be? See, our temptation in those moments is for us to begin to fold in on ourselves. We take our eyes off of Christ, and the moment we begin to do so, we often find ourselves beginning to believe those accusations and those condemnations. We begin to believe the things which are not true about ourselves. We begin to believe that we truly are condemned before God, and that those accusations from our accuser will render us guilty before God. But we must remember that the way to deal with Satan's accusation and condemnation is not to embrace them in such a way where they spin us out away from God, but to actually embrace those accusations through the lens of the gospel of the cross. To actually say to our accuser, man, you're accusing me of, of failing and falling and stumbling in my Christian life and to go, bro, you have no idea how true that is. It's far worse than you think. I do fail. I do stumble. I do fall. And if my salvation depends on my consistency, then I could be condemned. I could be accused. I could stand before God not justified if my salvation depended upon me. But praise be to God that it doesn't. That my past, my present, and my future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is where my hope is found. I have no condemnation because of Christ's intercession. I have no condemnation because of Christ's exaltation at the right hand of God. I have no condemnation because of Christ's resurrection. I have no condemnation because of Christ's death. There is no accusation that will ever be able to stand against me because God has chosen me and he has justified me on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. That's your acceptance tomorrow morning. When you wake up and you go start to live life and the accuser slips into your world, And begins to give those little whispers. Not cracked up what you're trying to put out. All right, man, you're just not quite what you want people to think. Man, you didn't read your Bible long enough. You didn't pray long enough. You didn't journal long enough. You missed that opportunity to share the gospel. You didn't go to church. You missed community group. You missed. You didn't do. You missed. You failed. You followed. You stumbled. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. And in that moment, what are you going to do? Brothers, you've got to stand up and go, bro. Satan, you have no clue. You're actually preaching the gospel to me. See, the enemy loves to preach the first verse. I am condemned before God. And he will put that in your face, but he conveniently forgets the second verse, which is this. But Jesus saves. The second half of Satan's condemnation, he conveniently forgets to tell us, You're accused before God. I am accused before God because of my sin. But praise be to God that I have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's how you embrace accusation through the lens of the gospel. That's how you brace condemnation through the lens of the gospel. You stand not on what you bring to the table, but you stand upon the foundation, Christ, the solid rock, his person and his work, which he has accomplished upon the cross. That is how you live The Christian life as a believer in light of the gospel. This is the basis of our acceptance with God. This is how we can stand secure and firm in him. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So if you're a believer here today, You've responded to the gospel, you've turned from your sin, placed your hope, your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ alone. How do you respond to what we've just heard today? It's simple. It's profound, but it's simple. What you need to do is rest and trust that everything that we've heard so far, from Romans chapter eight, verse 1, all the way through Romans chapter eight, verse 34, is a promise that is true for you promise that's true for you. Are you in Christ? I'm in Christ. Has He called you? I believe He's called me. Has He justified you? Yes, He's justified me. Have you turned from your sin? I've you turned from my sin. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation? I have done this promise for you. All things for good. He will bring you to the place where He wants you to be. You are in Christ. God is for you. The not sparing of His Son means that you are in the grip of the Almighty. He is giving you everything that you need so that you will be conformed to the image of the Son. You have been justified. No charge can be leveled against you. That will stick. Christ Jesus died. He was raised. He's at the right hand, interceding for you. You are not condemned. That's true of you this morning if you're a believer. So Paul's invitation for you is that you just simply set back And behold the love of God. That you sit back and you behold the love of God. That you would be overwhelmed by His grace. Another hymn. How deep that your mind would just go. Just go wade out into the depths of the grace. And recognize just how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He should give His only son to make this wretch his treasure. That's your proper response this morning as a believer. But what about those of us who might be in our midst this morning are like, man, I don't know about this Jesus thing. I'm a doubter. I'm asking questions. I don't know really where I stand. I've heard the claims of Jesus, maybe I haven't heard the claims of Jesus. I'm trying to wrestle, like, what is this Jesus thing all about? What is your response to what we've just heard this morning? In a sense, it's just the exact same response as the believer. Your invitation this morning is for you to come and behold the love of the Father and to be overwhelmed by His grace for you. Your response is to see just how deep the Father's love is for you. Remember, how deep is the Father's love for you who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ? He didn't spare his son. He didn't wait for you to fix yourself and then go, okay, I see now that John Davis has actually done a bunch of good stuff and he's made himself acceptable in my sight. Now I will save him. That's anti gospel That's not the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what's the good news for you if you're here and you don't know Christ. It's not go and fix yourself then come and present yourself to God. It's you come to God and go, God, I've seen for the first time how deep and how vast the love of God is and I want to respond and the response of the gospel is this. You just simply come and go, God, I don't know much, but I know this. My way has not led me to you. And so I turn from my way. I look to your way, Jesus Christ his person and his work and everything on the cross, and I am trusting in everything that he did. That is my only hope, that when I stand before you, God, on that final date of judgment, my only hope of being able to hear you, sir, you, ma'am, are not condemned has been accomplished by everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's the proper response of, for you if you're just trying to figure this Jesus, Jesus thing out. So what we're going to do is just roll into that time of response. The band's going to come. They're going to start playing. And what we're going to do is respond. Some of us are going to respond through worship. The band is going to lead us in some worship songs. And it'll be good and right for you to respond in this way. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ... If you can say like Paul has said here in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus, God has saved me, a good and right response for you is the Lord's Supper. There's two tables in the front and there's one table in the back. And what we're doing when we take of the Lord's Supper is we're proclaiming the realities of everything that we've been talking about this morning. When you come and you take that little cup of juice and you take that little piece of bread, what you're proclaiming is this, is that the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus were spilled and broken for me. That is my only hope of being not condemned before before God. That what Jesus accomplished on the cross has saved me, redeemed me, ransomed me, reconciled me to God the Father. And I want to come and celebrate that truth in front of us as a whole, with my family, with my community group, is to come and partake of these things and to respond in this way. That's a good and right response for you. Some of you just need to sit. Some of you just need to pray. Some of you need to seek out a pastor. Some of you just need to weep. Some of you just need to rejoice. Some of us need to repent of sin. All of these things are good and right responses for us. And now is the time to be obedient to whatever God, to be obedient to whatever God is calling you to do. So as Connor leads us, I beg you, respond. Don't put off the delay of what the Spirit is leading you to do. Respond as God is calling you.